When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. My jaw kind of drops at Claire and what she admits to. She has a striking honesty that I think is rare. You know, when she talks about motherhood, you know, and she says, I don't find it as fulfilling as it's supposed to be. That's shocking. And yet when she says it, you really feel like it's her truth. And she admits to one point that she will do nearly anything to get what she wants. And directly after that, she's talking about being unsafe, you know. And I feel like with Claire... She provides the audience with an opportunity to see that we are never completely one thing, even at one time. And I think that's a relief to see that on screen because that's who we are. And I think sometimes stories that are committed to celluloid sort of want to be neat and give hope. And in in giving hope, I think they think they should be neat and tidy and pleasant. And and to me, those aren't the stories that give hope. The stories that give hope is to lay bare us all in our messiness and still see our humanity and our goodness shine through. Hello, and welcome to The Awardist from Entertainment Weekly taking you inside this year's top contenders for the Oscars and more of the industry's biggest awards. I'm Clarissa Cruz, EW's executive editor. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Josh Rothkopf, EW's senior movies editor. Hi, Josh. Hi, Clarissa. Today, we're going to bring you our interview with actress Ruth Mega, whose galvanizing performance in Passing is already garnering her awards and Oscar buzz. Passing, a black and white indie set in Harlem during the Jazz Age, is the directorial debut of actress Rebecca Hall, who makes an unusually sensitive and intellectually ambitious foray into directing on a subject that's rarely explored on screen, the idea of hiding in plain sight and pretending to be a person of a different race. Ruth Negga did superb work in 2016's Loving, for which she was both Oscar and Golden Globe nominated. More broadly, we're going to discuss the status of the Best Supporting Actress race right now. The frontrunners, the potential nominees on the bubble, and other factors that could affect the race as we head into the thick of award season. This is a category with a lot of incredible talent in it, isn't it, Josh? Oh, absolutely. What did you think of Passing? I loved Passing, and right now we're kind of grappling with the idea of another Sundance that's going to be all virtual that was just announced the other day. I know. Right? Last Sundance in in uh, 2021, we saw Passing. It debuted at Sundance. And I remember of all the films I was streaming on my couch, Passing was one of the few that really stayed with me. And I found myself thinking about it a lot. It's it's such an incredible indie. It's such a beautiful vision from Rebecca Hall. But the performances in it, particularly Ruth, but also Tessa Thompson, are really the anchors of the film. It's a film that's kind of built of these very subtle moments and inflections. A lot of it is nonverbal looks and exchanges um, and secrecies. It's the kind of thing that um, an actor who is sensitive to performance would want to make. So I understand why Rebecca Hall would choose this kind of a subject because 
it really is putting a lot of the primacy of the force of the film on the performances, which it must have been incredibly fun to make. And I know that uh, Ruth in her interview talks about the making of this film. I would love her to break into the bracket on this one. I do find myself wondering who you think are the leading contenders right now in terms of best supporting actress for the Oscar race. Yeah. um, I mean, you know, I'm a huge fan of Kirsten Dunst and in Power of the Dog, she's fantastic. I also feel like she's one of those people that people want to reward. I mean, she's had such a long and varied career and um, is just such a, such a great actress. And I think this particular role where she plays, um, plays a woman who's uh, married into <laughs> this sort of dysfunctional family and terrorized by Benedict Cumberbatch's character. And she's, it's a quiet role, but it's so powerful in that quietness. I'm, I'm sensing a, th- a theme here because there's a lot of quiet, but like powerfully quiet because we're, we're talking about this with, with Ruth as well. But yeah, I, I do think, I think Kirsten has, has a good shot. And I, I mean, just speaking of quiet, this is something I wanted to ask you getting back to passing. I mean, that, that definitely is a slow burn of a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as I think Power of the Dog is too. I mean, what do you think about people maybe not having the attention span for some, something like this? Especially, you know, these are both Netflix movies. Watching it at home, there's a there's a very there's a very tempting pause button and <laughs> and you know being distracted by your phone. Um, you know, what what do you think um that effect has on on movies like this? I well, obviously, it's not great. I mean, I'm I'm distracted by my kitchen. I'm just I'm distracted by all, all, and it's yes, that pause button comes in handy. Although I have to say, when it came to Sundance, I really tried hard to kind of dim the lights and lean in a little bit and give the films right. the best shot they could. But you're absolutely right. I mean, when you're talking about a movie like Passing, there there is something to be said for sitting in a theater and really submitting to the experience without distractions. Um, right. But Passing was one of the few titles that that worked for me in that regard. I, I understand what you mean about Power of the Dog, which is so, it's such a, a, a feast of filmmaking and the cinematography and Johnny Greenwood's music and all the performances really are so beautifully orchestrated that it's almost a shame to watch something like that at home, even with the lights up. But Right. I, I, I totally agree with you about Kirsten Dunst, by the way. I feel like I've been waiting for her to do a performance like this for her whole career. She went through a phase where she seemed like she was kind of like narcotized or drugged, you know, like she played <laughs> a, a lot of characters who were kind of sleepy. And I, and I, I mean, mm-hmm. by design, she's always had great chops, but there's something about the way she weaponizes her vulnerability in the power of the dog yeah. that I found fascinating. And it's just like that performance and also way of putting movie. it. Yeah. I mean, the, the way she is counterpoised against these very aggressive men in the film um, as somebody mm-hmm. who, who could be um, exploited uh, and, and our hearts go out to her. I mean, that's really what makes her performance so dazzling. I've been waiting for her to take the vulnerability that you see in something like Virgin Suicides and and wet it to this. It's almost like a silent performance. Like it's a lot of shots of her face. Yeah. Her character becomes an alcoholic. So it's a lot of shots of her sneaking away to drink. And I mean, I just was, yeah. I was wrapped by her in that. Another performance that I think we should probably talk about in the context of uh, front runners would be Katrina Balfe in Belfast, mm-hmm. which I understand. Mm-hmm. I know that you're not as huge a fan of Belfast as I am. Um, <laughs> and I, I, 
I don't want, I, I, but I, I do think that she is, I, maybe, maybe it's something that we can agree on as sentimental as that film can be. She is yeah. easily the best part about it. She's the most sincere part mm-hmm. about it. She plays, um, I mean, Belfast is, is uh, Kenneth Branagh's memoir about his boyhood and growing up in Ireland during the troubles in the late sixties and early seventies. And she plays his mother and, um, or a version of his mother. And she in turn over the course of the film sometimes has to be courageous, sometimes has to be a disciplinarian, is always loving and concerned about the kids, but also has to sort of protect them in a basically a war zone. And she's yeah. um, a romantic character as well. She has a, a marriage that seems strong, but also at times is strained. There are money issues. Yeah. And I feel like over the course of the film, we're really getting a full portrait of of mother during this time. I, I thought she was terrific in the film. I don't. I, yeah, no, no, I, I agree. I agree. I, I thought she was great. Um, I thought I thought she was a big, uh, big part of the heart of that movie. Um, I mean, just just watching it, and you touched on this a little bit. You know, the portrayal of motherhood. Totally get it. Totally understand. Um, the one scene, <laughs> though, the the one scene where she sends her kid back, like in a riot, to like return that box of cereal right. or whatever that he stole yeah. from the store. I was like, no mother would send her, send her. I, I, I get the whole lesson. I would, you know, if my kids stole something, I would send them back too, but probably not in the middle of a riot. So that might be pushing me. I get the, um, I get the, um, the, the dramatic, um, the li- dramatic liberty there. And I, and I, I thought it was, it, I thought it was a really um, well done scene, but just part of me in the back of my mind was like, yeah, yeah, no, no, I would, I wouldn't do that. But that, that's nothing, <laughs> that's not to take away from her performance. Um, I thought, she, I thought she was fantastic. Jumping to another movie, um, Anjanou Ellis and King Richard. I mean, my goodness. I think that, you know, as much as, um, as, uh, as Will Smith is getting a lot of attention for that role. I mean, Anjanou, is the backbone of that movie, I think. I mean, she she just sort of grounds the family. I think her scenes with Will are so powerful and electric. And I, I just thought she was fantastic in the movie. The kitchen scene. The kitchen scene. If that's not an Oscar clip right there, I don't know what is. Um, that is a scene where Anjanou's character, she plays Venus and Serena Williams' mother, and Will Smith plays their father, Richard Williams. And they just have a standoff in the kitchen, you know, where... There is a lot unsaid, but there is so much said in in her eyes and in and in her pain. And I I thought that was just a fantastic scene. Oh, it's it's. I mean, Oscars. Uh, there are Oscar winners who have scenes like that, and I I, I think mm-hmm. about Network, right? And I think about mm. all these these great almost one scene winners where they just kind of like do a knockout punch. Um, Anjanou Ellis is like, right, you're watching King Richard and all of a sudden, and you know, and King Richard is, is a very inspirational sports movie that is largely by the numbers. I mean, I think it's, it's ennobled by the performances, which are uniformly excellent. Will Smith is mm-hmm. as good as he's ever been. But when that scene happens and, and it's a, a, like a marital standoff in the kitchen, all of yeah. a sudden, the register of the film gets so much more sophisticated, and, and and she's actually helping him with his performance in that scene and making yeah. his his character much more complex than we've heretofore seen in watching the movie. And I, I mm-hmm. just all of a sudden you lean in and you realize, oh, here's someone who who was not 
going to be accepting the sort of a steadfast wife role, even, right. even if the role was written to some degree that way, they accommodated room for Anjanu to really deepen and shade it and make it into someone who was maybe not as much of a, a ham as Richard was, right? Didn't hog the limelight <laughs> right. and wasn't as boisterous as as much of a braggart, but at the same time had real concerns about parenting and how they were raising their kids and his own failings as a father and a husband. Yeah. That scene is incredible. Yeah. It's not in what she says because, you know, there are like these lines of, you know, about another family, like she kind of hints at it, but you see all of the pain in, in her. I mean, mm-hmm. if you, I think if you were to just read the dialogue of that scene, there are hints to what some of those failings were on his part, but you really get the full sense of, of, of the impact on the family when you watch her. Absolutely. And uh, I think that we would be remiss if we didn't at least mention, as far as leading contenders, two actresses from West Side Story, Ariana DeBose and Rita Moreno, who I think has a narrative here that would just be hard to resist for Oscarologists interested in this. She is somebody who won an Oscar, famously, in 1961 for West Side Story. So that was 60 years ago, almost exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, And the idea of her being nominated again for a performance that I think it's a very sensitive and quiet one. We have a a beautiful interview with Rita uh, in the forthcoming issue, correct, in February? Mm -hmm. And she is... uh, talking about how she had a very specific um, idea for her interpretation of this character that was written for her, Valentina, as someone who is uh, interpreting West Side Story's very famous song um, somewhere, uh, but mm-hmm. interpreting it in a slightly angrier way, Yeah, which I, I thought was a fascinating reading. And she does some great acting, some very subtle acting in that scene. Um, and then there's Ariana DeBose, who has... I think one of the most electric performances in the film, she plays Anita. So that's the role that Rita played in the original. And it's just a show-stopping kind of a role. And Ariana just won the Los Angeles uh, Film Critics Award for Best Supporting Actress. So you could say that she is certainly a front runner in the race. Yeah, absolutely. And I have a, I have a question, and may, I hope I'm not putting you on the spot here, Josh, but um, whenever there are two... Um, actors in a category. How has that worked historically as far as vote splitting? Because I think my initial reaction is, okay, you know, people love this movie. Is is it going to be a disadvantage to have two people nominated in the same slot? Um, I, I'm kind of also seeing, you know, if this happens in, in Belfast with Jamie Dornan and, and Karen Hines, it's like, would two actors in the same movie in the same slot split the vote? Um, or does it does it not matter if there's enough love for, for one performance? I think that it uh, it's always so hard to know definitively, but I think as a, a general rule, having too many actors in those supporting categories diffuses the concentration of votes. I mean, this is something mm-hmm. that happened, I think, famously uh, with The Godfather, where you have so mm-hmm. many incredible performances on the periphery of that and, and so many nominated performances the idea that James Caan didn't win Best Supporting Actor for The Godfather is, is kind of shocking when you think about how great that performance is. Not to mention Robert Duvall or, or you know, Marlon Brando eventually did win, but it's kind of one person will prevail, obviously. There will only be mm-hmm. one person who's victorious. Right. But I, 
I think that that's where the idea of category fraud, that's something that people talk about these days, where a savvy distributor or studio will try to place the performances in the category they want them to be in or will have the most success in um, because maybe they Mm -hmm. won't be competing against someone else in the same film. I mean, there's no... I mean, what would Aristotle say? There's no way that you could say that <laughs> that Anita is the lead of the film. The, the leads of the film are Maria and Tony in West Side Story. Right. But, uh, but at the same time, you know, I think there are both both Ariana and Rita Moreno have heat behind them uh, for different reasons. You know, Rita maybe for nostalgia's sake, and Ariana because the performance is just so wonderful. But mm-hmm. we'll you know we'll see how that how that plays out. I, I do think that. Um, there are always weird reasons for people getting in. Category fraud is real. Do any of these supporting performances that we've mentioned so far, do you think any of them like transcend the film's leading actors? Hmm. I mean, and not to be beat on um, uh, Kirsten again, but like, I, I, I mean, I, when I first saw that movie, I felt like a leading role to me because she's in so much of it. Same. Um, yeah. But yeah. So, so I, I, and I, and I think that she was such a, a worthy, um, uh, scene partner with Benedict. I mean, th- those scenes where he's terrifying wouldn't have been as terrifying if it weren't for her reactions and her playing of that role. Not that I think that it's category fraud because I, I can see, but I also think that that performance is that powerful and, and could be considered a lead as well. Um, what about what about you? Katrina Balfe, I think also is. Yes. That is, mm-hmm. that is an example. I mean, if you were telling me the story of Belfast, you would say it's about a heroic mother. I mean, that's, yeah. that's the, those are the mm-hmm. first words out of your mouth that, that anyone would say. And the idea that this is a supporting, I mean, does that mean that the boy that plays Buddy, the, the surrogate for Kenneth Branagh is the lead? I mean, he does a fine job, I guess. Yeah. But, but, <laughs> but Katrina Bow's performance is so head and shoulders above anyone in that movie. And she has so much screen time and her husband who's played by Jamie Dornan disappears for a while in the middle of the film goes off Mm -hmm. to uh to England for a job and she's holding down the fort I mean this really is a leading performance but you know for whatever reason she is being considered in the supporting actress category and it's a category that if Belfast continues to gather steam it's an audience favorite, um, although there aren't a lot of audiences right now during Omicron. Right. Uh, I know. But if it continues to gather steam from crowds, I mean, Belfast could have a really good night at the Oscars. But we'll see. Are there are there any dark horses or do you have a personal favorite maybe who's on the bubble or maybe even outside the conversation who you wish was more in it? Yeah, I, I mean – uh, of course, I no no podcast will go by without mention me mentioning the lost daughter, um, <laughs> because that's that's like such I, I I swear I'm not on Netflix's payroll. Um, I it's, I love this movie good. and it's that good and I I love every actress in it. I want to advocate for Dakota Johnson. Obviously, Olivia Coleman's fantastic. I think Jesse Buckley's fantastic. I mean, they're they're just um they're just so many great performances in this movie, but Dakota Johnson, I just found her so edgy and flinty and mesmerizing every time she was on screen. And I, I, it was, it's a performance that I've never seen from her. And I thought she was so great. I mean, I feel like every time she was on screen, there was just that extra little element of danger and you're not exactly sure what she's thinking or what she's capable of. And also, you know, it's not just that. She also brings a very relatable view of 
motherhood and how how overwhelming and um, relentless it can be. And she does it in a way that's super subtle and I think believable. And I think those two parts of her performance are really well done. You know, Absolutely. like I think it's hard to yeah. She could just be like this sort of dangerous, um, mysterious, like femme fatale kind of person, but she also layers that with a with a very realistic depiction of motherhood. I'm 100% with you on that train, that lost daughter train. And I do think that mm-hmm. Dakota Johnson is, that's another example of the kind of performance that helps to shade the leading performance. Olivia Coleman is so, um, you know, comp- complex in that film. But Dakota Johnson, it's so interesting. I watch her and she is, you know, she's a young mother grappling with the demands of it. She's kind of messy and distracted and depressed and it's because she is all of those things and still kind of maintaining her poise that you begin to understand perhaps the background a little bit of Olivia Coleman's character because she looks at her on the beach and she recognizes herself, a younger version of herself. And then we, of course, also see in that movie Jesse Buckley, who is a younger version of Olivia Coleman's character. And I think Jesse Buckley's performance is is my favorite of the film. I mean, that's that shows someone who very much wants to prioritize her own loves and passions and at the same time has a family and there's a there's a pulling apart. And to watch Dakota Johnson and Jesse Buckley in The Lost Daughter is really to understand Olivia Coleman's character and also gives Olivia Coleman latitude to go very dark. Again, we're not going to spoil anything for you, but this is a movie that explores an unusual subject. And uh, I think these supporting performances give it the breath that we get excited about. As far as another performance, I think that we could add and as a dark horse, I'm just, I'm crazy about Gabby Hoffman and come on, come on. I, I, ah, I feel me too. Like me too. I could watch a whole movie. Just she plays Joaquin Phoenix's sister Joaquin Phoenix and Woody Norman, they play uncle and nephew. And so the film is primarily about them. But Gabby Hoffman is so persuasive as a sibling to Joaquin Phoenix. I feel like if Mm -hmm. enough people see Oh, they look like siblings. They look like (laughs) siblings. They have the same kind of (laughs) angularity, the same braininess. They have a kind of verbal believability. and, And she is, her performance is really one that I think allows him to go to places that he wouldn't have gone to. I, I would love to see some kind of a Phoenix effect happen. If you are watching Come On, Come On for Joaquin Phoenix, notice the person playing his sister and give her your attention. She's great. Right. Yeah, she's fantastic. And um, I, before we, we wrap and go on to our wonderful interview with Ruth Nega, um, can we just touch on Kate Blanchett really quickly? Um, because yes. I, I think she has two really fantastic supporting performances, um, one in Nightmare Alley and one in Don't Look Up. And they're both mesmerizing for different reasons, but I think we'd be remiss to not mention her here. Um, Absolutely. I think they're such, such different roles, um, but she just nails both of them, I think. The kind of range that she has at this point in her career, she's she can take us. I mean, in Nightmare Alley, she's playing this kind of swanky, mysterious, noirish. That really is a femme fatale, but also yeah. kind of hiding how how far ahead she is of Bradley Cooper's character, yes. and <laughs> and and so smart and so so obviously the one in control and having all the power in in that film, which is a thriller and and very voluptuous in terms of its style. But Kate is, is I think the hottest point of contact in terms of her performance. And then the way that she, 
I mean, I feel, you know, that I'm not a huge fan of Don't Look Up, but I do feel that among that entire cast, Kate is the one that seems to understand the brief here, I think, the best. Like, yeah. she, she's the one that's pushing it into that kind of, like, fizzy, strange love type satire where it needs to be. I wish the whole movie was on the same wave like that she was, but playing a sort of an anchor along with Tyler Perry and having that kind of glibness that she was able to summon with him almost immediately is just, yeah. it's just incredible chops. I mean, that's a great. Oh, comedy. it's all in the teeth. Speaking of right. chops, <laughs> all in the teeth, all in the teeth. But um, on that note, uh, when we come back, we have our wonderful interview with Ruth Nega, star of Passing. Welcome back to The Awardist. Ruth Mega joined us at the Savannah Film Festival in Georgia to talk about her film Passing, which is now streaming on Netflix. Here's Ruth on the subject of Passing itself. It happened so often, and yet we know so little about it. The word passing is not in the everyday lexicon. Do you know what you mean? And it's interesting, you know, when I think about it a lot now, I think passing as in a death you know, passing on into the into the next world, because it is like that. And it does feel like this person is sort of going on to a journey, you know, over the river sticks into an underworld, because it is an underworld they're entering into, because it's a world of secrecy. Ruth's character, Claire, haunted her. Here she is on characters that can sometimes haunt an actor. There are a few characters that I think linger with you and sort of leave their mark on you, a residue, if you will. And they're actually very, it's very welcome. And Claire is one of those. I think, well, her function in the book, really, if I can use that word function, it's so boring, but it's true, is to unsettle, disrupt, create chaos. And I think that kind of vibrancy of that energy, I think it's very hard to embody and then discard, which I love because I just I loved playing someone like that. I loved playing someone who was so unapologetic about all of themselves, you know. I mean, in the film, as in the book, there are several instances when, you know, my jaw kind of drops at Claire and what she admits to. But for her, it's, um, she has a striking honesty that I think is rare. You know, when she talks about motherhood, you know, when she says, I don't find it as fulfilling as it's supposed to be. That's shocking. And yet when she says it, you really feel like it's her truth. And also when she says, when she says, she says, um, she admits to one point that she will do nearly anything to get what she wants. And directly after that, she's talking about being unsafe, you know. And I feel like with Claire, she provides the audience with an opportunity to see that we are never completely one thing, even at one time. You know, um, and I think that's a relief be- to see that on screen because that's who we are. And I think sometimes stories that are committed to celluloid sort of want to be neat and give hope. And in, in giving hope, I think they think they should be neat and tidy and pleasant. And, and to me, those aren't the stories that give hope. The stories that give hope is to lay bare us all in our messiness and still see our humanity and our goodness shine through. Here's Ruth on working with Tessa Thompson and on the value of feeling safe to explore any subject on a set. Fearless isn't just something one person 
an individual generates in themselves, it has to be uh, an environmental thing. And I very much believe in that. And with that comes a sense of camaraderie and fun. And we laughed a lot on set. And I think that is sort of um, a release, if you will, for the tension and the subject matter. And I think that is crucial. When you're doing sort of, you know, things that are very sort of emotionally trying, that is essential. And luckily, Tess is like that. We giggled an awful lot. And, you know, these are these these two characters are really sort of, they're so deeply connected to one another that you can, you do start thinking they're the same person. I did. You know, I even went so far as to sort of muse on if if Claire is, is, a, is a sort of coping mechanism figment of her imagination, you know, an outlet, if you will. And so they're so dependent on one another. And so our performances were going to be, had to be, if we were going to tell it, the, the story truthfully. And so being open and vulnerable to one another as performers, but as individuals was key and crucial. And I think, you know, we very much created that spirit of safetyness between us and that spirit of connectedness. And I know I feel like there's so many, I mean, no performance is, can be really done individually, but I think I'm drawn to, and this was certainly was, my performance was very reliant on her and, and I think vice versa. And, and that's a really fun, lovely, sort of liberating place to be, you know. Here's Ruth on her director, Rebecca Hall. Also, she speaks about her producers, Forrest Whitaker and Nina Yang Bongiovi. Rebecca is an amazing performer, and she has this combination of intellectual curiosity and also a more visceral curiosity. And the two together are really quite extraordinary. And, um, you know, knowing a bit about her familial history um, and our connection to the concept, the practice of passing, her passion, I found it intoxicating. She knew what she wanted. She wanted a black and white 4-3 ratio, and she wanted two women of color leading it. I mean, when she said that some people were suggesting maybe not, I didn't. I still didn't understand how that would work, but anyway. But she stuck to her guns, and she found in Forrest and Nina people who were willing to not only, like, take that on, but, like, champion it. And I think if we had more people like that in the industry, you know, supporting these voices, we could do anything. We could go anywhere. That, to me, is thrilling. But, you know, you know, and I like working with people like Rebecca, especially directors like Rebecca, who understand the collaborative nature of this endeavor of filmmaking, because it's really hard. But, you know, I felt like she felt everyone was equals and everyone was treated as such and everyone had a say and everyone had a contribution to make and it was fully valued. And that's beautiful to see. Thank you, Ruth, and special thanks to senior editor Brittany Kaplan for conducting the interview. Passing is currently streaming now on Netflix. And that's it for this episode of The Awardist. If you liked what you heard, subscribe, rate the podcast, and leave us an award-winning review on Apple Podcasts. To keep the conversation with us going, follow Entertainment Weekly on all socials at EW on Twitter and Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. You can also tag us at ClarissaNYC1 and Josh Rothkopf. We'll see you next week. This episode of the Awardist podcast is hosted by Clarissa Cruz and Josh Rothkopf, produced by Chanel Johnson and Sammy Junio, executive produced by Shana Crockmall, edited and mixed by Sammy Junio, 
Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. Thanks for listening.